Amen. Amen. So good to be back with you this morning. Even though we were physically away from you, we were with you here in spirit last week. And I want to thank again Nicole for leading our worship night last Wednesday and for Mike uh, bringing the message on Sunday and just everyone that just uh, volunteers around here. Um, you all are so capable and so competent, it allows your pastor to go away and literally release everything, and that's huge. A lot of pastors don't have that luxury like I do to have such great people to just be right here, and you're in good hands always. So I just want to thank all of them. Would you help me thank them, please? Yes. And before the message this morning, too, we have two recent, uh, more recent folks, ministries that have started watching us recently in our live stream, uh, and I just wanted to give a shout out to them at the nine o'clock service, but I wanted to let you know about them, too. We got two really nice emails, uh, one from a ministry in West Africa and another one from India. And so we literally have people watching us from all around the world. And uh, it's humbling, but also very encouraging how God is using our church here in Gilbert to reach across the oceans and the miles. Luke chapter 20 this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus. And in this passage, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26 this morning. And you have here sort of three different scenes or settings that we're going to be traveling through this morning. Uh, as we begin, I want to remind us, because it's been now a couple weeks, that what takes place at the beginning of chapter 20, where the religious leaders of Israel are questioning Jesus' authority, comes on the heels of him driving out those that are selling things in the temple courts, and how he rebuked them and told them that you have turned my house, which should be a house of worship and prayer, into a den of robbers. So keep that in mind as we come in to chapter 20. That's the context of those questions or challenges, if you will, to Jesus' authority. But before we get to that, I want you to note something else. And we've seen this throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke. It deals with the priorities and the values of Jesus. In Luke chapter 20, verse 1, we see, first of all, what is Jesus doing again? He is teaching the Word of God. The Word of God is a priority to Jesus Christ. Therefore, if it's a priority to Jesus, and he's our ultimate example, then the Word of God should be a priority to our lives as well. You always found Jesus teaching the Word of God. But where was Jesus teaching the Word of God? In the house of God. And therefore, the house of God was always a priority with Jesus. Therefore, the house of God should be a priority in our lives as well. Luke tells us he was teaching the Word of God in the temple, proclaiming the gospel giving out the good news of God to those who would listen. But now comes the challenge. And who is he being challenged by? 
Well, Luke describes them this way. They are the chief priests. They are the scribes, or how the Net Bible describes them, as the experts in the law, and then the elders. These make up what is known in Israel as the Sanhedrin. Maybe some of you have heard of that term throughout your Christian life. They were a group that literally ruled everything in Israel, obviously under the Roman Empire here, but they were the power brokers in Israel. Any power or authority that someone had in Israel had to come through them, okay? Um, there were 72 of them in this group. And there's really no equivalent to them. Uh, the best way I can try to bring it down to where you and I could understand it is if we combined the Congress of our country, the Senate of our country, and the Supreme Court all wrapped up into one entity, that would be the Sanhedrin. They were a very religious group, obviously, but they were also a very political group. And they were sort of the ones, again, that was in charge of the power and authority in Jewish life, which is why they became highly offended and were highly charged when Jesus went into the temple courts and drove out the people that were doing business there. Because note, when they come to Jesus, they are literally challenging him. They are throwing down the gauntlet. And let's not forget another context here of when this is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's just a few days away from hanging on the cross. So you're coming down to the very last days of Jesus' life on earth. And these people come to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who is the source of your authority? In a sense, they are saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? How dare you come into the temple courts and do what you did without our permission? We're the only ones that can grant anyone that kind of power and authority. Now, you and I, who believe in Jesus, know this. He is the eternal Son of God. Therefore, he has inherent in him all power and all authority. There is no higher power and authority in the universe than Jesus Christ. He carries that within his person at all times. So even though he's going to be challenged, he never gives up that authority or that power. He is always ruling the universe that he created. I say that only because, you know, we can live in a world, too, that challenges the power and authority of God. But every time God's power and authority is challenged by human beings, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. In fact, anytime even Satan and the demonic kingdom challenges the power and authority of Jesus, they lose too. Throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have seen Jesus demonstrate his power and authority over the demonic world. 
by casting out demons, by telling demons what they can do and where they can go. He has shown his power and authority over nature and all creation, stilling the wind and calming the seas and the storms. Over and over again, he has shown, I'm the one with all power and all authority in the universe. So Jesus, instead of immediately answering that question, turns the question back on them. He says, I want to ask you all a question. Was John the Baptist's ministry, was it from heaven or was its source simply man-made from people? Which was it? Jesus says there's only two sources that that possibly could be. Either John the Baptist's ministry was from God, the source of his ministry was divine, the things that John the Baptist did was under the power and authority of God, or it was from people. Which is it? Well, these leaders don't have or give an immediate answer. Because remember, everything that they do is so politically calculated. So guess what? Instead of really being leaders, they have to come apart and huddle with one another. And they start discussing the question that Jesus gives because they want to make sure that they give a right answer politically. And as they start discussing it, they realize the quandary that they're in. They say, well, if we say to Jesus' question that John the Baptist's ministry is from heaven, it's from God, then Jesus is going to ask us, then why didn't you embrace John? Why didn't you promote John's ministry? Why didn't you encourage others to be a part of John's ministry? But then they say, but if we say that John's ministry was not from God, that it was simply from people, then the people are going to stone us because there are many in Israel who think that John was a true prophet of God. Therefore, they come back to Jesus after their little huddle and they say, we can't give you an answer about that. And so Jesus says, well, then neither am I going to answer your question about what authority I have to do the things that I do. Jesus, in a sense, is looking at them as high as it gets in Israel and saying, if you can't decide about John the Baptist, then you can't make a decision about me either. Now, how can we apply what's going on here to our everyday Christian life in this way? Do we recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ has all power and authority. That there is nothing in this universe that has greater power and authority than he does. Secondly, Jesus taught his followers, if you follow me after believing in me and you are doing my will, you are accomplishing the work that I gave you to do, then do you realize you live with my power and authority. I have granted my power and authority to you. Then the question is, are we living in and with 
the power and authority of Jesus Christ every day. In the Great Commission, Jesus said one of the last words on earth, all authority and power in the universe are mine. Now, go in my power and my authority, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, but go in my power and my authority. Are we living in the power and authority of Jesus Christ? Are we living with the power and authority of Jesus Christ? Do we know what we possess as God's people and how we can be living on a whole different level, a whole different pl uh, plane every day by understanding what's even taking place in the first eight verses of Luke chapter 20? Then we come to verse 9. Jesus now sees a teachable moment and wants to seize the opportunity because he knows that most of his audience are Jewish. Therefore, he is going to speak a parable to them, which is a story that basically recounts the history of Israel and how it has responded to God, especially when it comes to God sending his prophets to the nation. Because if you know anything about the prophets of God of the Old Testament, they were all and their messages rejected in general by the Jewish nation and by the Jewish people. They were never welcomed. They were never embraced. So look at it with me for just a few moments. First of all, Jesus starts out this story by telling us a man planted a vineyard. His audience would have known immediately who he's referring to. Why? Because in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, a vineyard was representative of the nation of Israel. Read Isaiah chapter 5. The whole chapter, as well as many other passages in the Old Testament, are about how a vineyard represents and illustrates the nation of Israel. So, a man plants a vineyard, and then he leases that vineyard to tenant farmers, Jesus says. These are caretakers of not only the plots of land, but they are caretakers of the promises of God that go along with that. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. Even though Jesus is directly speaking to Jewish people here, I want us to apply this to our lives today for this reason. The Jews... Yes, we're God's people and still are, but you and I now as part of the church through a relationship with Jesus Christ are God's people too. And therefore, just like the people in Jesus' day and in the Old Testament, we are also caretakers of the promises of God. Is how we are living, the way we are living, the way we respond to life, is it reflecting that we believe and trust in and are putting our hope in the promises of God? Because that's what these tenant farmers were representative of. God had given them wonderful privileges and wonderful responsibilities. And part of those responsibilities was to be caretakers of the word of God and of the promises of God. So then... The owner goes away on a long journey. 
And after a long period of time, begins to send, Jesus says, servants back to the tenant farmers to receive back the portion that he is due as the owner. And every time he sends a servant, they are horribly rejected and mistreated. The servants represent the prophets of the Old Testament that God sent as his spokespeople to his people, and they continually mistreated them and rejected them and treated them horribly. See what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you folks don't have a good history of responding to God in a proper way. Your whole history has been you continually reject. And we've seen that on Wednesday night in our study of the book of Exodus, how God said to Moses, my people are a stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, obstinate people. They won't move when I'm moving. They won't respond when I'm revealing and manifesting myself. It's been a problem throughout the history of Israel. So then notice what Jesus says. He says, so the 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 owner is sort of at at a breaking point. He's exasperated. What shall I do? Here's what I will do. I will send my one dear son. Maybe they will show greater respect for my son than they have for my servants. Now that phrase, one dear son, is very significant. It's the same phrase that's used in a very familiar verse that we all know, John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he sent his one dear son into the world so that any who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the one dear son in this parable is literally Jesus himself. And what happens to the one dear son when he's sent to the tenant farmers? It says they see him and they say, oh, this guy's not just a servant. He's a son, which means he's an heir. So let's kill him so that we can obtain the inheritance. Well, the crowd around Jesus, they're like, may it never be. May may we never treat the son in that way. And Jesus said, and he looks at them, intently at the, I, I can only imagine what the look was that Jesus gave to his audience at that point and he says then what is the meaning of that which is written that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone Jesus is saying it has been predicted in the Bible that God's foundation stone of his plan would be rejected by his people and yet, and yet, would become the cornerstone. You see, Jesus Christ is claiming here that he is the foundation stone of the plan of God and that his death would neither destroy the son or the promise. It would be given to others, which is exactly what Jesus said. When the owner of the vineyard sees that his own son has been killed, what shall I do? I will come and I will destroy those tenant farmers and I will do what? I will give it to others. That's us, the Gentiles. You see, God said, I will lay aside or set aside Israel for a time 
I will come back to them at a point in history. But for now, I'm primarily not working through Israel now. I'm now going to build my church. Primarily made up of Gentiles because God's people rejected the spokespeople for God and even God's very own son. But here's how I want us to look at what Jesus said here today, especially when he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus not only has all power and authority as the eternal son of God, Jesus is the surest foundation any of us could ever build our lives on. There is no sure foundation than Jesus Christ. He is the rock of God. And if you and I don't build our lives upon him, as Jesus goes on to say in the parable, then we will be crushed by the rock. Because that rock is indestructible. You cannot destroy a solid rock. And there is no more solid foundation than Jesus Christ. So then we have to ask ourselves, not only am I living in and with the power and authority that God has granted to me, but am I building my life upon the surest foundation that I could ever have? There's no more stable, there's no more secure foundation than Jesus Christ. He is the foundation stone of God's plan. In fact, Jesus even illustrates this. Way early on in his ministry, he says, if you come to believe in me, and trust me and my sayings, I will tell you who you are like. He says, you will be like a person that builds their life on a rock. And then he says, when the storms come, he doesn't say if they come, because all of us will have storms come into our life. He says, when the storms come, if you have built your life on me, the rock, then you will remain through the storm. You will not suffer any permanent damage or destruction because you have chosen to build your life on the most surest, securest, stable foundation any human being could ever have, and that's me, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say, if you choose to build your life on any other foundation than me, when the storm comes, your house your life will suffer damage. You will suffer loss because you have not chosen to build your life on the proper foundation. Are you building your life upon Jesus Christ? Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, there is no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. You and I can try to find another solid foundation in our life to build it on, but there is no other. In fact, Jesus says all other foundations are like sifting, sinking sand. The only solid foundation is Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 20. In verse 20... There's this group of people that are sent to Jesus who are going to try to trap him in his own words. Luke has been given insight 
through the Holy Spirit of God into what's really happening here. That maybe on the surface, it looked like this group of people were very sincere. But notice Luke tells us they're not sincere. In fact, it even goes on to say later on in the passage that Jesus even knew that they were full of deceit. That they did not come for anything positive. They came to tear him down and try to trap him in what he was going to say. And they thought, finally, after all these years of trying to to get Jesus behind the eight ball and and to, to trap him, that they finally have come up with the question that he won't be able to satisfactorily answer. Because in their minds... They think, well, if Jesus' answer to our question is, yeah, pay your taxes to Rome, then the Jewish people are going to turn against him. But if Jesus' answer is, no, you don't have to pay your taxes to Rome, the Roman Empire is going to jump on him right away. So notice they pose an either-or question to Jesus. They say, Jesus... Is it right for us to pay the tribute tax to Caesar? Ah, can you imagine? They think they got him. How is he going to get out of this? And so Jesus says, hey, any of you guys have a denarius? And he knew they all did because they all bought and sold stuff within the Roman Empire. So they all had Roman money, right? He says, Whose inscription is on that denarius? The answer was, well, Caesar. So Jesus' response to an either-or question was a both-and answer, something they were not expecting. See, many times that's where we get caught up. We look at a certain situation and we only see it as an either-or option. There are times where Jesus says, you're not looking at it right. It's not just either or, it's both and. And so Jesus says, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Oh, and by the way, there is the image of Caesar on the coin. But you know whose image we're made in? The image of God. So when Jesus says, Give to God the things that are God. Every human being, according to the book of Genesis, has been made in the image of God. Therefore, every human being owes their life and their existence to God and therefore should give their life to God. Give the material things. Give the tax to the Roman Empire. Those aren't the most valuable things. Your soul, your heart, your mind, your life... Those are the most valuable, and you were created in God's image. Give those to God. You'll notice something. In verse 26, the Bible tells us, Luke records, they are stunned by his answer. They didn't see that coming, and they fell silent. Literally, they have no answer. Think about it. In a sense, who the Jewish people would have determined and and, and heeded as the the smartest, most intelligent, most know-it-all people in all of society, and yet they have no answer for Jesus. You know why? 
Because when you reject Jesus, you have no answer. Because Jesus Christ, um, not only being the power and authority of the universe and the surest foundation, he is the answer. He either is our answer or through him we'll get an answer. But there is no other true answer apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other truth or reality outside of Jesus Christ. He is our answer. And if we're looking for answers outside of Jesus Christ, we'll never find them. Only in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ will we find the answers to all the things we want to know. But there's also something else that Jesus is teaching here that is so important, especially in the climate in our own country that we live in today, even amongst Christians, and that is this. When Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, I want that to resonate with you and me. It goes along with what Paul said in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority governing anywhere in the world that has not been instituted or appointed by God. They don't get there unless God has a purpose for them being there. In fact, Paul goes on to say, that if we reject our governing authorities, good and bad, we are rejecting the ordinance of God and will incur the judgment of God. In other words, Jesus is reminding us, I, as the Lord of glory, transcend politics. Let me repeat that. Jesus transcends politics. It doesn't matter what time in history you and I are born. It doesn't matter what country we're born into. It doesn't matter who's ruling that country at any time. Jesus is declaring to all people who will listen that the power, the provision, and the presence of God will enable his people to thrive in and under that authority no matter what. No matter what. Think of the stories in the Bible. Joseph thrived under Pharaoh in Egypt. Daniel thrived under wicked King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And when did God decide to start the church? What time in history when the Roman Empire was in power? Why? Because Jesus had already told his followers, I, because of who I am, I will build my church right outside the front doors of hell, and hell can't do a thing about it. Because I'm the one with all power and authority. I'm the surest foundation. I'm the one that if you have my presence, provision, and power in your life, you can thrive no matter what. We get so caught up with the conditions that we live in. And and, and can I say this to all of us? I think even we as Christians alive today many times care more about our comfort than we do the glory of God. 
Because God is saying to his people, I can put you anywhere in history, in any country, at any time, under anyone ruling, and if you'll just listen to me and follow me, you can thrive, and it has nothing to do with your conditions, your circumstances, or your situation. No matter what. I hope that today, those three words will literally resonate with you throughout the coming days. That those words in some way will be engraved upon your heart and mind, tattooed somewhere on your soul. And if you forget those words, then maybe get some ink and put it down somewhere so you don't forget no matter what. See, that, that's how great, that's how amazing, that's how awesome our God is. A lesser God only could work and and, and meet needs and all of that in certain circumstances. Our God is so amazing, it doesn't matter what circumstances you give him. He will prevail. He's greater than the circumstances. He's bigger than the situation. And he wants us to translate then this principle that he's teaching here in verses 20 through 26 of Luke 20, and he wants us to bring it right down to our own personal lives today. So let's make this real personal. What situation, what circumstance, what opposition, what enemies are you facing right now in your life? What are you dealing with that's causing you concern and worry and anxiety and all of these things? God is saying to all of us, I don't care what it is. With me, you can thrive no matter what. My presence in your life, my provision in your life, my power in your life will enable my people to thrive no matter what. Instead of us being defeated as God's people, and getting discouraged by the things that God allows us to be a part of and go through and experience, God is saying, live in victory. Realize that you are more than conquerors through me who loves you. That you can prevail, that you can be a, an overcomer and live a life of overcoming because of who I am. I don't care if you live in the Roman Empire. I'm going to build my church during the reign of the Roman Empire, and nothing's going to stop it. I'm going to build my church right outside of hell, and hell, all the force of hell, isn't going to stop it because that's how great I am. So whatever you're dealing with in your life, I want you to translate that. It doesn't matter who you've, it doesn't matter what Goliath is standing in your way. You can defeat that Goliath with God. You can overcome that circumstance. You can rise above your circumstances. Because if Jesus can say to the people of his day, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I don't worry about Caesar. I don't worry about the Roman Empire. I don't worry about who's in charge because they wouldn't even be there if I didn't allow them to be there and put them there in the first place. If I have people in authority in countries, it's because it's for my glory and my purpose. And it may not always be for our comfort. 
But we need to be a people that cares more about bringing glory to God than we do our own comfort. In the last few days of Jesus' life, these are the things that Jesus really wants his followers especially to get and to grasp. I have all power and authority, but I can give it to you. I'm the surest foundation of your life. There is no sure foundation. Build your life on me. And realize that my power, my presence, and my provision in your life will enable you to thrive no matter what. Jesus is sufficient no matter what. Jesus is faithful no matter what. Jesus is reliable and dependable no matter what. Jesus is strong enough no matter what. Jesus is the answer no matter what. So today, as we close our time in God's house, I want us to close on a note of triumph. I want us as the people of God to declare that, God, we are trusting in your power and authority greater than any other power and authority. We're trusting in you as our sure foundation. We're trusting in your presence, power, and provision in our lives that we can thrive no matter what if we just trust you. And that we as God's people are going to rise up and we're going to be a testimony to that. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to call Nicole and the worship team to come on up. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to close in prayer. But after that, as we sing this last song, I'm going to call some of you out to come here to the front to be a testimony of triumph and to say, God, It doesn't matter what I'm dealing with and what I'm going through and what I'm facing right now in my life. I believe in you. I'm trusting in you. And I believe that I can thrive no matter what. And I want to be evidence and a testimony to the people of God around me to be an encouragement to me as we sing this last song. We had many, many people come at 9 o'clock. I hope that there will be many of you who choose to come and be a testimony to your God today. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, you are here today. And you, through your son, Jesus Christ, have reminded us and revealed to us your greatness and your goodness. There is no greater person in the universe than you, God. There is no stronger, more powerful, more authoritative person in the universe than you. There's no surer foundation, no more solid rock than you, God, for us to build our life upon. And there is no greater provision and presence and power that we could ever have in our lives that will enable us to thrive no matter what. So God, today, may we leave here, Lord, a triumphant people, a people living in victory, not allowing the things that happen to us or come into our life to defeat us 
and to discourage us, but to allow your, your grace to help us to soar and rise above our circumstances and our situation. Because you're greater and bigger and more sufficient than all of it put together. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.